What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to this week's Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always is Joe Healy. And we will be joined here in a little bit by UC Irvine coach Ben Orloff. Going to talk a little bit about the Eaters, who are, of course, the reigning Big West champions and look to be pretty good headed into 2022 as well. So we're going to get into the, the 2021 season and, and how that, that title came to be for UCI and look ahead a little bit to 2022 as well uh, with Ben Orloff here in a few minutes on the Baseball America College podcast, which is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, here we are. It's uh, October 14th as we record this. We're recording it a little bit later in the week. Uh, Both of us have been on the road. You went on uh, a bit of a Midwestern jaunt. And I went to Florida for the uh, perfect game World Woodbat Association uh, World Championship. Uh, the tournament's name always escapes me a little bit. More commonly referred to as Jupiter, uh, the last big event of the travel ball season and uh, coinciding with the end of the recruiting calendar. So it was the last or the recruiting evaluation period, I should say. So it was the last chance for college coaches to get out on the road and do in-person evaluations this fall. So a lot of, a lot of coaches checking out of players in, uh, in Jupiter. And, and I was there, you know, buffing up on the, the 2022 class ahead of signing day and a little bit further down the line, the draft. So uh, that's why we're coming at this a little bit later in the week, but still uh, excited to, to do it and uh, happy to talk about all of the baseball we've uh, we've been seeing lately. Yeah, really kicking kicking into high gear in a lot of ways. I you mentioned me being in the Midwest. It was ostensibly a, a family trip. You know, I've, uh, my family lives back in the Midwest, and you know, my my brother and his wife have a relatively new baby, and my parents are there. So just a good good excuse and folks that I haven't seen a lot since since COVID started and the distance obviously making it tough. So you know, while I was there, I figured I'd check out some baseball. So I went and got to you know be around some of my old stomping grounds when I was living in the Midwest and, and covering games there and. And so that is nice. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a nice time of year. It's pretty laid back. You know, coaches tend to be a little, um, a little more laid back, and, and you know, they're just kind of they're kind of game to 
um, shoot the bull a little bit. All right. Well, we're uh, we're going to get into more about our travels. Talk a little bit about Jupiter. A little bit about some of the fall ball Joe has seen. Uh, but first, we're going to get to that interview with Ben Orloff, the Ant Eaters. One of the more fun stories uh, from this this spring, I would say. I know we enjoy talking about them on the podcast. Anyway, they went forty three and eighteen. 32 and eight in the big West won the big West title kind of going away uh, ahead of UC Santa Barbara second big West title in, in program history go on to be the number two seed in the Stanford regional and push that to a, a game seven or a regional final uh, against the Cardinal before Stanford uh, won it on their way to a college world series appearance, but the, uh, the eaters really gave, gave Stanford all they could have asked for. And uh, now UCI is returning just about everyone from that team. It feels like, and right now in our never too early top 25, UCI is in there as the big West favorite. And so very interesting to see where they'll go from here as, uh, as UCI looks to continue its momentum uh, from last year and really over the last couple of years since, uh, since Ben Orloff took over this program. So we're going to get into all of that and more here in a second with, uh, with Ben Orloff. But first, check this out. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we are happy to be joined by UC Irvine coach Ben Orloff. The Anteaters are coming off of a Big West championship in 2021 and again look to be formidable heading into 2022 so an exciting time around the UCI program and coach we're uh, we're happy to to have you here to talk about it yeah for sure thanks for having me on and, and thanks for the coverage all right so this last season you guys were just from the start of the season, really, you, you swept UW on opening weekend and a series that came together kind of last minute. But from there, you guys were, were off and running, go off and, and win the Big West title, kind of going away. Um, just when did you realize that that was a year that, that could have such a special team? Yeah, I think coming into it, you know, we, we thought we were going to be a good team. Uh, you know, we had a lot of guys back in the program. Um, I think, you know, we got off to that good start against Washington and like what you said, a series that came together about two days before it happened, um, had a chance against UCLA that second weekend. Um, and then we actually lost the third weekend at Riverside and, and went one and three at Stanford on week four. Um, I think after that weekend, when league started, I think that the fresh start being 0-0 in league, um, kind of really helped our team kind of, kind of reset. Um, but we knew we had a good team in that weekend at Davis, I think was the start. Uh, we had seen some flashes over the first four weeks. I think that was kind of the start of, of what we were able to see the next couple months. So you end up, you know, in the end, you end up going 32 and eight, which I don't think, you know, in, in a big West season with four game series and everything that went into that, I, I you know, I, I think most people assumed it'd be hard pressed to have one team kind of run away with the league in the way in which you guys did. How special was that just to be able to not winning the big West is special to begin with, but do it in a year when, there were so many challenges put in front of you know your program and others with with having to figure out how to manage four game weekends and manage the COVID stuff and everything that went into last season to be able to succeed at that level. Yeah, I mean it was definitely an unprecedented year. I mean I don't like talking about COVID too much because you know we were everybody in the country was going through it. Um, but yeah, I mean the the four game weekends. I remember when we swept at Davis week four, thinking 
you know, knowing how hard it is to beat somebody three times, um, trying to think, you know, in the whole course of the league schedule, how many four game sweeps are there going to be? Um, and so for us to kind of have the, the relentlessness and competitiveness as a team to do what we did throughout the conference schedule, you know, to be 32 and eight, uh, uh, is really special. I think it shows the type of team that we had that, that we were able to just continue to play week in and week out, um, in a conference that's really, really good and, and doesn't get near the credit on the national level that the Big West Conference deserves. Um, so we're really proud of that. You know, it's only the, the second time in the history of the school that, that UC Irvine's won the Big West. The other one was when I was a senior, and it was a similar type, type deal where, where we went 22-2 and two that year. 32-8, um, and eight, you know, it was a similar type deal where, where like Teddy said, we kind of, you know, wire to wire. Um, we're the team that was on top of the league. What, what was that like, you know, being a player winning the title and a coach winning the title, how were those experiences and those teams similar or, or different? Hey, it's harder as a coach, as a player, all you're worried about is trying to get a hit, trying to get a multi-hit game. Um, I think what was really similar, um, you know, I think coming into the season, you know, there weren't much, I don't, I don't think many people were very high on, on us. Um, I know, you know, we were picked seventh, eighth, fifth, um, you know, by a lot of publications. Um, I think that the belief within our program was that we had a really good program that was, you know, capable of, of you know, being one of the one of the few teams that had a chance to to compete for a national championship. Um, I think to do what we did, um, you know, it, it's it's you really have to fight against complacency because, you know, I think when you're winning and things are going well, um, it's really hard to not be complacent and think that you've achieved something already. And so I think the the uh, the ability of our team to have a short term memory and move on from move on. From from success or failure and just to tr continue to try to get better every single week. I, mean, I think sometimes, you know, winning can make that, that a challenge at times, but uh, our kids did a really good job with it. You're back a, a pretty good portion of, of the team that was there with you last year, um, save for, for just a couple of guys um, at this early stage, of course, a lot of stuff to figure out still, but I mean, what generally has you excited about your 2022 team? Yeah, I think it's, it's exciting, you know, that, that these guys have, a lot of the returners have experienced winning and what it's like to be on a really good team. Um, you know, from last year was our first postseason appearance since 2014. Um, you know, and so when, when as coaches, you talk about, you know, winning or the postseason, you know, that was all just words to our roster because nobody had ever actually been there. Um, so I think now, you know, it's more than just a belief that, that you see can be really good. A lot of guys got to live it last year and see it. Um, so that's really exciting. And, and uh, I think, you know, the, you know, we're, we're very demanding um, of our players and, and really believe in the attention to details. Um, and I think with last season, how it ended, you know, our, our players really understand the importance of everything um, as it relates to winning. Um, and so that's exciting to return a lot of those guys. Um, we obviously returned some players that had, you know, really big years last year, but, uh, you know, it's a new year and we're 0-0 and, and, you know, Nathan Church doesn't have 100 hits, um, you know, it's, it, it's a new year and we're on Owen, but, but yeah, like you said, we're really excited about a lot of the players that are, that are back on this team. Your offense was pretty impressive last year, able to put up a lot of runs scoring a, a number of different ways as well. And we don't always see that from a stereotypical big West team. I think a lot of people think of the big West as, as a pitching conference, but you, you had a very good offense and, and were able to, to mash, um, you know, with Stanford in that regional, especially and in some other PAC 12 teams, what went into that and, and what do you uh, kind of, what, what's your hitting philosophy? Yeah, on offense, you know, I think it really started back in, in 2000, I mean, 
for a while, but, but we you know it was a similar type deal in, in 2019, we had a really good offense. And, and this year, I think it really took a step forwards for us. It's, it's about trying to be able to win every type of game possible. You know, there's nights you got to win two to one and there's nights in the Stanford regional where you're trying to win 13, 11. Um, and so to be complete in what we can be offensively, um, I think that all starts with strike zone management for us. Uh, you know, I think we were one of the handful of teams in the country that, that hit 300 as a team with a 400 on base percentage as a team. Um, and I think when you look at our lineup, we were, like what you said, very well-rounded. Um, we talked about the batting average. We talked about the slug. I think we finished with 200 extra base hits. We attempted 70 stolen bases. We got 50-something sacrifice hits, 120-something hit by pitch. Um, and so that, that's, you know, I think you look at the stats and that's what we're shooting for on offense, to be very complete and well-rounded and able to win a lot of different types of games. Um, and I also think the four-game series in our league helped because um, it, it's tough to, to staff for four games and be able to have, you know, really, really good quality pitching. But um, we were a really good offensive team last year, uh, as evidenced by the numbers. Um, that's hoping that, something that we're hoping to, to continue to build on. You mentioned those four-game series being tough on pitching staffs, but, I mean, you guys really handled that pretty well. I mean, you know, you had four four starters you really could lean on, four guys who were really getting it done. You had a, you had a deep bullpen. It seemed like you weathered that storm really, really well. Um, a little bit different story going into this season, going back to presumably three-game series. Um, so what did you learn about your pitching staff in those four-game series that maybe you can extrapolate out now as you go into 2022, as you go back to a little bit of a, a more normal schedule? Yeah, the, the four-game series are really good for depth and getting guys experience. And I think, you know, we were able to have that depth last year to, to put us in a good position to win a lot of those four-game series. I think that, um, you know, historically the pitching at UC Irvine has been really, really good. Um, you know, Danny does a great job with, with our pitching staff. And, um, hey, you know, in 2019, we were number one in the country in strikeout to walk, two in walks per nine, three in whip and shutouts in the country. Um, and so I think last year with the four game schedule, uh, you know, it was a lot of the same. Um, we were able to stay healthy on both sides of the ball for the most part, which really helped uh, Michael Frias, you know, kind of coming into the season. We were not anticipating him having the type of season that he had, which was a huge benefit for, for us and for him. Um, and so we're hoping that a lot of the experience that those guys got last year will, will carry over to this year um, it'll be a little bit easier to, to manage the bullpen in three games versus four um, but again kind of like on offense that the confidence and success you know can breed more confidence and um, you know hopefully it, it does have some carryover benefit to this year I mentioned you guys went to the Stanford regional last year pushed Stanford uh, you know the hosts of that regional to uh, to a game seven what does that experience do for for a team now that returns so many guys and are you sick of seeing Stanford after playing them like six or seven times last year? No, it was, Hey, I, I think playing them early in the year um, was a benefit for us just going up there and, and knowing what the field was like and what the team played like. Um, so that was a benefit to us. And we're not tired of seeing Stanford coach Esker and those guys did a great job. That was a really good team last year. And um, obviously they had a heck of a run deep into the college world series. Um, but, you know, I think kind of like we touched on earlier, I think just that the belief um, you know, that, that Irvine and that us can be, you know, one of those elite programs. You know, when I, when I went to school here, uh, you know, we went to the postseason four times. We were, you know, playing in a super regionals, hosting a regional, winning the conference, going to Omaha. And then, um, you know, we did it again in 2014. And then there had been a little bit of a stretch um, from 14 until last year of Irvine being a postseason team, even though there were some good years in between. 
so I hope that, you know, that our players now that they, you know, they believe that, that this, these are types of things that, that happen in Irvine and that are the expectation and understanding of more than everybody's trying to win, obviously, but that our guys really understand and, and buy into the process that it takes to be one of those teams that, that gets those results late in the season. And so, um, you know, that's a huge benefit that our players got a chance to experience that and live that and see that, you know, we can play against, you know, Stanford or, or a team like that or anybody else in the country. We've alluded a little bit to your playing days and you played at UC Irvine under uh, Dave Serrano, a former colleague of, of mine and Teddy's here at Baseball America. And, you know, he, I think he told the story on the podcast and maybe it was just offline, but about recruiting you and, and saying that, you know, he had, he had talked to, talk to you about a vision for the UC Irvine program. And at that time, it's important for our listeners, if they don't know, to understand that UC Irvine baseball had not been um, running as a program very long at that point. It had been restarted and it was still a fairly new program. It was a startup operation. And yet a few years down the road, you guys are in Omaha. So I'm curious if you remember what the recruiting pitch was like with coach Serrano. Did you think he was kind of nuts for talking about this being a program to go to Omaha? Um, What was that process like? And and what do you remember about that? Yeah, they didn't have to recruit me very hard. Nobody else wanted me. Um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely remember, you know, sitting in coach Serrano's office, um, and him talking about this, this vision that he had of, of going to Omaha and, you know, I believed him, I think with his track record of, you know, being at Cal state Fullerton and having them won the national championship a couple of years before, um, you know, I believed them. And that was probably the strongest draw about UC Irvine was the chance to come and compete for a national championship and go to the college world series, um, you know, and then to be able to come to school and have that happen. Uh, you know, it, it, that is a little surreal. And, um, you know, I think one of the guys that doesn't get enough credit for all the success at Irvine is Coach Savage, who, you know, started this program and, you know, and then they're playing in a regional three years later, you know, on a program. And then Coach Serrano and the team that I was on that, that went to Omaha in 2007, you know, that was in the fifth year of existence of a Division One program. Um, and then to, to play for Coach Gillespie and have him do what he did here for 11 years. Um, but yeah, I distinctly remember sitting in Coach Serrano's old office and him telling me that one, they wanted me, which was nice to hear. And um, two, that, you know, this was a program that was going to go to Omaha and compete to win a national championship. You mentioned Coach Gillespie, who took over after Dave uh, went out to Fullerton and you, you both played and then went on to, to coach with, with Skip, who uh, of course, unfortunately passed away a little more than a year ago. What, uh, what did you take from from playing for Skip or, or what'd you learn from coaching with him that, that, you know, is, has stuck with you now as a head coach? Yeah. I mean, we don't have enough time to, to talk through <laughs> all the stuff that, that he's meant to me in our program and college baseball as a whole. Um, you know, I quit playing professional baseball when I was in double A, you know, doing having the best year I've had to come back and work for him. Um, and, you know, getting to work for him for five years was a master's class and how to be a baseball coach. Uh, you know, I saw his drive, even at an older age, to to want to be really great and want to do things really well, not just at the game, but at practice every day. Um, you know, he, he taught me a lot about, you know, having to have your own book and your own percentages and and do what you think's right, regardless of what, you know, the, the quote unquote traditional baseball rules might be. Uh, you know, he, he talked a lot about decision making, that you can make a really good decision and have a bad outcome. And you can make a bad decision, have a good outcome, but it's all about the process that you go through uh, to, to get to those decisions. You know, Coach Gillespie, he used to always say, you know, there's no small things, it's details. Uh, and that's something that's really, you know, a big core part of our program now. It's about the details and paying really good attention to details, knowing that every game is going to come down to, to a handful of plays. And, 
And uh, we got to be perfect in the details and, and just the personal accountability of the coach that whenever anything would go wrong on the field, Coach Gillespie would first look at himself and our coaches and, and say, have we coached this good enough? Have we practiced it enough before getting on the players? Uh, and so I got to, to learn a lot from him and the opportunities that he's created for me in my life. Uh, you know, I, I, I would never be where I'm at if it wasn't for Coach Gillespie and everything that he's done for me as a player and as a coach. You know, I got uh, fortunate enough to – I was his neighbor for the last – uh, two and a half years of his life. So spent a lot of mornings in his living room, you know, learning what it's like to, to be a good coach. That's uh, such an amazing uh, opportunity that, that uh, you had being able to be his neighbor in addition to playing for him and coaching with him. Um, the Big West uh, as a whole this year looks to be pretty intriguing. You look up at Cal Poly, uh, and see Brooks Lee being talked about as a, as a potential, you know, maybe top five, top 10 draft pick. Uh, you guys return an awful lot of talent, Palm Beach State, uh, UC Santa Barbara, a new coach at, you know, Cal State Fullerton, just a, a very interesting conference. As you start to, to look around the Big West this year, uh, kind of what do you make of, of the, the conference and, and its overall direction now? Yeah, I think, I mean, you guys, guys know because you follow the sport so closely you know the big west is is a really great baseball conference that has a long history of major leaguers and massive postseason success uh and i think this year will be another one of those years uh you know you you touched on a couple of those teams santa barbara has been going really as good as anybody on the west coast the last couple of years uh long beach state has a good team and a lot of guys back the job coach serrano is doing but at Northridge, Larry Lee is as good a coach as there is. And uh, they, they have an old team this year. Brooks Lee, like what you said, is one of the best players in America. Uh, coach Hill of Hawaii, I mean, just on and on, the, the depth of our league and the quality of coaches and the quality of our player, of the players, uh, it makes it fun to, to play every week. And I think because of the quality of coaching and players in our league, that's why you see the postseason success, uh, you know, and it's – you – you wish that the national level that the big West would get more respect for how, how good the teams really are. I mean, even last year, you know, Santa Barbara is a three seed and they go and, and beat Oklahoma state twice and playing a regional, a regional final in 2019 that they lost single digit games, um, but we're a two seed. Uh, so we're really looking forward to the challenge and it's really fun to be a part of the big West and play against the caliber of coaches and players that we have in our league every year. This will be another one of those. So we will start to wrap up here with a question we ask all of our guests. I will ask it and then I will filibuster for just a minute to give you a chance to kind of give it some thought. But we always wrap up by asking our guests to describe their favorite sandwich. Um, because you're in Southern California, I would also accept your favorite taco. So I'm unilaterally making the decision we can go sandwich or taco. So some people describe a sandwich they make at home. Like they, they just make a sandwich, you know, at home a certain way they really like. Uh, That's their go-to. Some people describe a sandwich they get out at some local place uh, and they give us that. So you can take it any direction you would like, but please Ben Orloff, describe your favorite sandwich or taco. Hey, you'll let me off the hook with taco. Um, I'll, I gotta shout out. El, El Cholo has the best fish tacos ever. Um, El, El Cholo down in Corona Del Mar. That's, that's my answer for you. I'm uh, scribbling notes down because really, I mean, really this is a selfish segment for Teddy and I, we're actually just compiling a list of sandwich and taco places that's all this this is a selfish segment but uh yeah i think there, um, there's a lot there's a lot of el cholos to, uh it's the uh, the the owner's game ron salisbury it's a great guy and, and most of them you can walk in there and you'll actually see a picture of coach Gillespie on the wall and a lot of those 
Oh, how about that? Yeah, a lot. Uh, look, I mean, I, there's a lot of reasons why life in Southern California is not so bad. And, and fish tacos, I got to be honest, is higher on that list than most people would would assume. <laughs> yeah, we're we're pretty fortunate <laughs> down here. Not many people have it better than we do. <laughs> Absolutely. So hopefully we're able to uh, to get out, try one of those fish tacos, and and see some eaters this spring. I, I think it's going to be another exciting year for uh, for UC Irvine and. Uh, we appreciate you you stopping by the Baseball America College podcast to to help break it down for us. No, thanks so much. I appreciate you guys having us on here and everything you do for college baseball. So thank you. Thank you again to UC Irvine coach Ben Orloff for joining us today on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, Joe, like I said, I, I I thought the Eaters were just an exciting story last year. The Big West was a little bit, uh, it was very difficult to handicap going into the season. Things had been very confused on the West Coast um, because of how different every locale and, and university was treating um, the COVID situation last year. So it was hard to get a read on on that conference. And um, it turned out that that Irvine was you know, kind of far and away the, the best team UC Santa Barbara, very good. Long Beach State, very good. But it was it was UCI that that really emerged as uh, as the clear class of the conference, and uh, often looked good doing it. I enjoyed being able to watch Eaters games. They had a very diverse offense, like we talked about. They pitched well. It was uh, it was really a, a formidable team. Which uh, you know anyone that that was able to see them in the regular season, I, I think caught. And if you didn't. By the time uh, postseason came around and, and they they gave Stanford uh, some difficult games there, I, it, it was it was very apparent. Yeah, and I thought it was. I mean, the, the offensive piece of it, I think, is you know he mentions them having a good offense in, in 2019, and I went back and looked at that, and that is true. That of course they they took it to another level in 2021, but that did take some adjustment for me because I you just kind of get, and we talked about this with him, you kind of get in attuned to the idea that a good big West offense is different than a good offense in other parts of the country. Like you think you have a preconceived notion of what that looks like. And maybe you have one bopper in the middle of the order, but you've got a lot of guys who are maybe speed guys or guys who handle the bat well, but they really did have some physicality up and down the order that I think really set them apart in that league. You know, Santa Barbara did as well. And I think maybe that's part of this is a, a broader conversation, but I think maybe that's part of maybe the big West moving forward and maybe getting to another level as a conference. We talk a lot with big West coaches. I mean, this is a theme that the big West doesn't get the respect that it deserves. And we've, we've gone into that time and time again, and don't need to relitigate it. But I do think if, if, if the league is going to move forward, I think that is a little bit of a way forward is I, I think there was a little bit of a reckoning to be had with, this is a different version of college baseball and winning the way the big West has traditionally won uh, maybe needs to be reevaluated a little bit, which is not to say you can't win with pitching and defense, but it's a little bit of a different game. And these days, and, I, and so I think, um, so I think maybe what you're seeing is a little bit of an evolution of of the good teams in that league to to modernize a little bit. Um, now, the flip side of that is that they also had a really deep pitching staff, which we talked about, and the four game series were really a test of Big West staffs. Um, they handled it better than most. And they did it a little bit different than the Big West typically does it because while the Big West is a pitching and defense league, typically one of the issues the Big West teams have often is depth on the mound. You know, even the good pitching teams will typically have good frontline pitching, whether it's, you know, two good starters and then a little bit of a question behind that and maybe one or two guys in the bullpen they lean on. It's usually 
more of a, a game of the high-end talent versus the depth. And so UC Irvine is really able to flex some muscle by, you know, by looking at having eight or 10 guys they really trusted on a weekend, four starters that they could really lean on. Trenton Denholm, the guy most people know, was actually statistically probably the worst of the four in the rotation. And that's how good they were. And so that was a little bit different than what you expect from the Midwest. This is a team that really bucked a couple of trends from you see from what you see typically out on the West Coast. And it's one of the reasons I was fascinated to talk to him a little bit about some of this stuff is because I think maybe they wouldn't say they're doing anything really all that different. Um, but I, I do think this is a team that's looking at winning games a little bit differently from what we've seen in that conference for a long time. Yeah, it, uh, I, one of the reasons why I had been excited about the eaters, I guess, both in 20 and 21 was Denholm. And I still think he's a really good pitcher and it's not like he had like, like he was bad, particularly. He just wasn't kind of the, the shutdown ACE that, you know, I, I would have expected him to be coming into the year, but yeah, they, uh, they came out with a lot of depth. They had, you know, some nice bullpen pieces. Jacob King was uh, really good at the back end of games for them. And, they were they were able to to do that with uh with with multiple guys. It wasn't just King, you know, Brooks, Ingerbritson, all uh all very good there in the bullpen and uh allowed them to to have some some flexibility on the mound. And and then on the offensively, you know, like we've said, like they were they're very multiple to borrow a football phrase that I hate. Um, you know, they they had some power, they had the ability to execute in small ball situations that they just did a lot of things really well. And so that enabled them to, you know, keep pace with Stanford when, you know, they needed to in a slugfest, but also, you know, grind out some, some tougher, uh, more low scoring games. So yeah, it was, uh, it was a fun group and, you know, looking ahead to, to this season, um, obviously, you know, everything's different, you know, to, to Orloff's point, everyone's zero and zero zero right now, and gotta gotta start over. But uh, they they got a lot of experience last year, and and should have an older group again this year that uh, I I feel like again can you know contend in the Big West and beyond. Which, uh, by the way, quick aside: which football coaching cliche would you prefer to banish forever? Like introductory press conference cliche that they're going to be multiple on offense or that they're going to have an attacking defense. I would say that the strength coach is uh, really going to toughen, toughen them up and, mm. and uh, you know, they're going to get after it in the weight room as if they weren't doing that before. That's right. Yeah. The, la- <laughs> <laughs> the last guy was just, they weren't doing nothing in the weight room. They were just standing around. Yeah. Those are uh, like, woof. I hate, I just hate introductory coaching cliches in, in football, you get the multiple offense and an attacking defense. And I just love for a coach to come out and be like, we're just going to play really soft defense. We're going to keep everything in front of us. <laughs> just try to make a bunch of tackles anyway. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, UC Irvine to your point, I think they, you know, they, they lost a couple of key pieces, you know, Denholm, Peter Van Loon are now often in pro baseball, uh, Peabody in the lineup signed a free agent deal. So there are some pieces to replace there, but they, they are returning quite a bit. And I do think it, as we discussed with him towards the end of the interview, I, I do think it sets up to be a really interesting big West season, just from the standpoint of one of the handful of the best players in college baseball is in the conference in Brooks Lee. And, and we'll have to see 
what that whole team ends up looking like. Um, because, you know, we've, we've played this game with, with Cal Poly before where we like individual pieces and, and the whole doesn't fully come together to be a postseason team. But you, you talk there about- are other pieces besides that. You know, Drew Thorpe was on the sure. national team. Like they've got some pieces, but it didn't come together in 21 the way we thought it was going to. Um, there was a time I got very excited about Cal Poly, probably here on the podcast, certainly right uh, after they beat UCLA. And it that turned out probably to be the peak of the season. So uh, they're, they're going to have to find a way to be a little more consistent. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's a, a little bit of a, a theme too. I, you know, I think we didn't really get to see fully what Long Beach was capable of last year. The schedule made it such that we never got to know that. And even still, there was... I, I feel comfortable saying they should have been a regional team, though. Like, that that was a regional talent team. Yeah, I think, I think I'm leaning that direction as well. And they're in a little bit... I mean, they proved a little bit more than Cal Poly last year, I think. But they're in a similar place where it's like, you really like Devereaux Harrison and Luis Ramirez in the rotation. Devereaux Harrison, the closer, Luis Ramirez in the rotation. And, you know, Connor Cox in the lineup. You know, there's really some pieces there you like, and it's just a matter of, of how they fill it out. I think there's a little more certainty with UC Irvine and then with what Santa Barbara comes back with. Santa Barbara probably has more high-end players that have departed now, but they've got some really nice pieces in, in, on offense. They, they had some injuries on offense last year. I, you know, wrote about them at the time. The positive spin of that, though, is that they ended up getting a couple of freshmen in the lineup in like Jordan Sprinkle and Zach Rodriguez, who ended up being two of the better offensive players in the Big West that maybe they probably would have played, but who knows how much of a starring role they would have had for that team had those injuries to, to guys like McLean O'Connor not happened. So I think they're in a pretty good place. It's just, you know, it's probably early on Fullerton, but I'm fascinated to see what Jason Dietrich in year one does there. Um, you know, Also Hawaii, like I, I didn't mention it, but, but Orloff did, you know, what, what does Rich Hill now do at Hawaii? Yeah. And that, that's a program too. You know, Hawaii is always going to be a tough gig. I think, I feel like we've talked about that before. There's, we could sit here all day and talk about the drawbacks at, at Hawaii and some of the benefits of, of coaching at Hawaii. But um, you know, that, that's a program I think that, in the big West, you know, has struggled to gain its footing. I don't think I know the struggle to get their footing in the big West. You just look at the records, but it, it seems like a place where a good hard reset with a coach like Rich Hill, who's while it had tailed off at San Diego, there's no disputing that it won a lot of games there. I, I, I do think that is a place where I, I would not be surprised to see that program up and going. So that it's, it's not hard to get yourself excited about the big West in 2022. And let's be honest, there have been years in the not so recent past before Irvine was really up and running now before Santa Barbara had found the consistency they seem to have found. And I say that specifically seem to have found there were some years where it was kind of hard to get overly excited about what the big West was bringing to the table. Yeah. There, there were some lean years to be sure. I mean, they're also kind of in those lean years, they managed to get uh, four different teams to Omaha four straight years. It it just, uh, you know, you you didn't quite know what you were going to get in any given year out of the big West, but it, it, it seems like, you know, this is a place where there have been some changes. Um, you know, Andrew Chekets is now a little more established at Santa Barbara, but it took him a little while to, to get that program going. Uh, ben Orloff is, I think this is now year four um, for, for him as head coach, obviously uh, Fullerton, you know, just turned over as did Hawaii um, you know, Dave Serrano went back, uh, to the big West with, uh, Cal state Northridge a, f- a few years ago. And, uh, they've been intriguing, uh, and, and, you know, Long Beach state turned over, uh, a couple years ago as well. So there, there's just been some turnover and, you know, it, it does seem like a lot of programs within the conference 
are moving in the right direction. And, you know, that, I mean, that's exciting really for, for everyone. The, the big West being better at baseball is, uh, is, is to everyone's benefit here. Um, and, uh, you, you know, th- throughout college baseball, I feel like, and, uh, Irvine being able to, to take that next step, I think is, is a big, big part of that. Yeah. That, that whole deal where the, the big West got teams, you know, teams to Omaha four straight years and it, like impressive. Yes. But it's one of those things where it was impressive and I'm not really sure it meant much of anything, you know, like some of those teams, you know, I want to say you earn it when you get to Omaha. So I don't want to take anything away from those teams, but you know, those were teams that, I mean, just look at, you know, what they did or didn't do when they, when they got to Omaha, some of those teams were not necessarily one of the eight best teams in college baseball. They just kind of ended up there. And so it's one of those things that is an impressive feat that I don't know that had really much of a bigger meaning in terms of what the, what the big West was at that point in time. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I think the, the meaning to take from it was that you are battle tested coming out of the big West, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's hard to, to know what exactly to, to take from that when, you know, you had, yeah, I, I guess I think Fullerton was the only one that hosted a super regional in that stretch. And the only reason they hosted was because there were upsets in both regionals that were, that were paired together there. Um, so yeah, I, I, the, the big West still has a little bit of a ways to get back to the point where it was when it was consistently hosting regionals and, and super regionals. I guess Long Beach hosted in that same time that that's the last time that happened um, kind of organically. Uh, So, so we'll see where it goes, but I, I I think that, you know, the more, more seasons that we have like in 19 and 21, when um, Santa Barbara put up a really gaudy record in 19 and and now Irvine did it last year, uh, you know, the, the closer the big West gets to, to that. And um, a lot of eyes are going to be on the conference this year with Brooks Lee being in it. And um, with uh with some of the newness at, uh, especially at Fullerton and uh, Irvine coming off of the season it had. So uh, yeah, like you said, Joe, it's, it's easy to get excited about the big West ahead of 2022. I would really like to make a, and maybe this will change, like, you know, all this, this stuff is constantly shifting. It feels like underneath our feet, but I'd make it like to make a public plea for the big West to put more baseball games on ESPN, uh, watch ESPN app. Cause they, there were, I know UC well, and diversity of them of because like University of San Diego uh, or not U- UC, UC San, San Diego, Diego, excuse right. me. Uh, all their games were on all the time, but yeah. Can we get, can we get a few different schools to, to do something like that? And like, you know, a lot of them do, I, I will give them credit because they are, it is better than some other leagues where they, they do stream just about any big West game you could want is on kind of their own, the conferences, you know, yeah, own streaming TV. right platform. However, like that's, you know, it's not on my Roku. Yeah. For six or seven years ago, like that would have been a nice. And I think they, they were doing that six or seven year ago, years ago. So there probably was a point where that was kind of ahead of the game, but now it, you, you do have to take an extra step to bring a big West game into your daily rotation. If you're trying, if you're in a position like you or I often are on the weekends, where we're trying to keep up with a million different games it is hard to bring a big West game into the rotation when you're working on big TV, um, which is not on your TV screen. And, you know, it's some of the streaming quality is not great from school to school. And I get that that's not the easiest thing to fix quickly, but 
Um, you know, it would just be nice if, if the, the availability was a little bit better on something more mainstream. I can't tell you how many nights I ended last spring with UC San Diego on my TV. Because yeah, it was the do. last game that was on ESPN Plus. Do you want to do like a full Tritons breakdown? Like, can you, <laughs> you feel confident that you could provide that? I mean, I could break down like the back of the Tritons bullpen much better than I can break down the the starters. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, I, I would I would second that. Let's get let's get some more Big West uh, on TV here. Um, I, I do appreciate the level of uh, you know the like you said that they've got a lot on on streaming but like let's get it let's get on my tv screen now all right with that let's uh let's flip over joe to some of the the spots the hot spots you hit uh in the midwest uh you actually went to some uh a little more off the beaten path places um i'm actually not sure that you saw a uh, a team that made the ncaa tournament last year but that's okay uh you know exciting just to to get the fall ball games and and see the the next next round. I'm most interested of the places that you went in Missouri because I just feel like the Tigers they hit a they, they tried to hit a bit of a reset button after finishing in last place in the SEC East a year ago and missing the the SEC tournament. They hit the transfer portal uh, relatively hard. They brought in a, a pretty good recruiting class. Um, and I'm just now really interested in how these pieces are going to fit together. So what did you see in Como? Yeah, it's definitely a team that hit the reset button. And I think they kind of got caught in between, I feel like, with last year's team. At a place like Missouri, I think, and this is often the case with teams that get kind of caught. Kentucky's in a similar place. A lot of times you see this with some of the ACC teams that are more Northern. You're kind of on a cycle. Um, another place I went, Kansas is kind of like this where you've got teams that are compete teams and you've got teams that are rebuild teams. Now that doesn't fly at LSU, for example, but at places like this, it has to be part of it. And I think in 2021, they got kind of caught in between a compete team and a rebuild team. The 2020 team was clearly a compete team. Now they had the, the NCAA sanctions that weren't going to allow them into the postseason, So that was always a thing, but that was a compete team. 2019 was a compete team, but they lost enough after 2020 and the weirdness that ensued there, that it was kind of like a, a team that was half and half going into last season. And then you, you add in stuff like not having Connor Ash or Trey Dillard for large stretches or at all, and then that's how you end up with, with last in, in the SEC and, and just really kind of a, a tough season. But, you know, they we're going to find out a lot about, you know, we've talked about which teams are going to really hit the transfer portal hard. And like, are we going to what are we going to find out about building a team through the transfer portal? They don't have the biggest transfer class, but there is like a very real scenario where, you know, they run out of rotation that involves. Carter Rustad from San Diego in the rotation, Austin Morozos from Charlotte. And then it wouldn't be a shock to see, you know, they've got a, uh, you know, a, a transfer from NAIA and then Chris Wall, who was dominant at that level, um, local guy from Columbia college, you know, that, that I'm not saying that's rotation. I've not had that depth of conversation with, with Steve Beezer, but like that's on the table for this team. So that gives you just kind of an idea of how hard they're hitting the reset here. We know Nander DeSatis, from Florida State's probably going to play a big role. They had him at second base um, in, in this instance. I think 
maybe that's a place to put in because they do have good athletes that can also play shortstop, you know, already on the roster, um, including Justin Cologne, um, a freshman who is on this team that, that looked impressive in the, the look that I got there. Really just an instinctual defender um, at shortstop looks the really looks the part there. So um, I think this team's, I mean, it'd be hard for this team to be worse. Um, I don't mean to say that to be mean, but they just, they did win a lot of games last year. So I think they won what seven SEC games. Right. And they won 14 total or something like that. I'm not looking at their, their wins and losses here, but it just wasn't a good year. So I think the team is, is better just because sometimes the hard reset is, is good. And another team that I've seen recently, Wake Forest, I think is in that same boat a little bit where it's a little bit of a hard reset. And I think that might be, might be good. Um, it's just going to be, does the science experiment take? Because if, if you tell me that Carter Rustad is as good as we thought he was going to be coming out of high school and as good as he showed he maybe could be in the small 2020 sample size that we saw. And then you tell me that DeSantis is a little more consistent and that maybe they hit on a couple of these freshmen, like, you know, Juju Stevens and a, you know, really athletic outfielder or Carlos Pena, who's a, you know, physical, um, you know, guy with a lot of raw power as a freshman. Like if you tell me a couple of those guys hit, like, you know, maybe we're talking, I still don't know that I'd, I'd pick them as a regional team, but it's certainly something at least heading, heading in the right direction, but they are, um, you know, of the three teams I saw it, I think it's the one that you can kind of squint hardest and see, see the, the scenario where they, where they make, um, where they make the postseason. It's an interesting group of players. It's just, we just don't know how to judge what we're seeing with teams that have really hit the portal this hard. Missouri went eight and 22 in the sec last year and 15 and 36 overall. So we shorted them one win. Oh, uh, well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's so, you know, I saw there were a couple of, you know, I saw Kansas and, and Kansas is in a similar place really. They always are. If they just have to have a number of things happen that you wouldn't necessarily bet on happening, but could theoretically happen. Is there a Friday guy, Cole Larson, who was very good last year and was one of the best pitchers in the country through the first like six, seven weeks of the year. Is he a like first team all conference potential guy in the big 12? If he is now we're talking Joni Ulane, their closer was excellent last year. Is he that good again? Um, they have an Eastern Kentucky transfer in the outfield. You know, is it, um, is he ready to be a guy who hits 10 or 11 home runs like he did at EKU? Um, you know, Rich Price thinks their shortstop Maui Ahuna is, you know, a top three rounds draft pick by the time he's done there. Like, does he show more of that? Is Tavian Josenberger, you know, as, as good as he was as a freshman? Just it's that, that if, 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 if game. And that's what you have to do at a place like Kansas and Illinois. I saw them as well. That's similar. Their, their big question is on the mound. I still think that's their big question. Uh, I think the offense has a chance to be pretty good at Illinois. I think they can score some runs, but it's a team that, that last year, their best starter was Andrew Hoffman. He's not there. Um, you know, I, I like the lefty Cole Kirschsipper who, you know, pitched in the Appy league, pitched, uh, got one appearance for team USA, uh, pitched a little on the Cape. I believe he was all over the place this summer. I really like him. I think he's, he's got some, some, stuff going for him. I don't know if his stuff is really good enough to kind of be like a real Friday dude, even in the big 10, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, but for Illinois to be any better than they were last year when they were just kind of a 500 team in the big 10, their, their pitching is going to have to be way better than it was. Cause last year they just could not consistently consistently get outs beyond a couple of guys. Yeah. I'm uh, the, the, the big 10 as a whole right now is intriguing I, uh, I I don't know what to make of kind of the middle of the Big Ten. I feel like the top end of the Big Ten is going to look similar 
but that also rarely happens in the Big Ten. Usually there's some sort of turn. So somebody from the middle last year, maybe it's Illinois, theoretically should be able to pop up and, uh, you know, contend. But I, I just I don't know who it's going to be uh, that can get in the mix with, uh, you know, with a Michigan, Maryland, Nebraska discussion. And, and you can put Indiana in there if you want, though they've had a lot of turnover from uh, from last year as well. One, one guy on Illinois that, that I should mention, who's just kind of a fun player. I think if you're just observing and you're, and you're looking for players to earmark to watch Justin Janis, their first baseman led the big 10 in hitting last year, and then went to the Northwoods and led that league in hitting this summer. And I, I talked to some scouts who were there at Illinois. Um, when, when I saw them, they were playing a scrimmage against Eastern Illinois. And um, the, the consensus on him is he's funny because one of the hardest jobs that scouts have right now is finding guys who can hit like the hit tool is just hard to pinpoint a lot of times. And it seems like when I read Carlos's capsules on players who are in the BA 500, it's like, you know, 60% of the hitters say, well, the question is how much he's going to hit. This guy can hit. The trouble is he's never consistently hit for power. His exit velo numbers don't really blow you away. He's pretty physical. He's not a monster size wise, but he's physical enough where you can like, imagine that he could develop some power he's not a great runner um he doesn't look overly athletic he's a good first baseman but he's not like a you know super slick trey morgan type of first baseman so he's just like a really fun he controls the bat extremely well um so he's really fun to watch he's gonna hit um what he does beyond that is is more of a question and if he unlocks something else like i think he's a really intriguing prospect but so far, we've yet to see that something else. So that's that's kind of the, the question there. Um, we can transition a little bit. There are a couple of other programs that I didn't see necessarily, but uh, that I wrote about last week. I think there's some interesting things going on. I, I posted Georgia Tech fall report. I posted an Arizona fall report. I also saw Wake Forest. I have not written up Wake Forest yet. Uh, the five questions series, uh, but I anticipate I will in short order. Um, those are three interesting programs. Um, I will just quickly touch a little bit on all three of them. I'll let you take it where you want to go. Um, Wake is also a hard reset team. Like we talked about with Missouri, interesting recruiting class led by Josh Hartle. Um, the stuff isn't like blow you away right now, um, but he really knows how to pitch. I saw him in a, in a brief outing there really knows how to pitch and um, really knows how to use a breaking ball, which is something that a lot of freshmen just don't quite know how to do yet. So we know what they have in Brock Wilkin. We know what they have in Eric Adler, who are both great on the Cape. Rhett Loader feels like a key guy, big time stuff in the rotation, struggled last year. If he takes a step forward, I think they're on to something. Arizona, a lot of turnover there. Obviously, Jacob Berry, a handful of players drafted, new head coach, and Chip Hale. Uh, TJ Nichols feels like the key to the rotation there. Big time stuff on Fridays. Chip Hale was pretty effusive in his praise for him. Offensively, Chase Davis feels like a big key there for protecting um, Susack in the lineup. That's big there. Uh, Georgia Tech, how much are they going to pitch? Um, Marquise Grissom Jr. is kind of the leader in the clubhouse to be the Friday guy. The other thing they're talking about in the rotation is moving Zach Maxwell to the rotation. Um, fastball up to 100 miles an hour, struggles to throw strikes. And that's kind of the, the short version of what he provides. It's big body. You know, the, I have questions about, is he durable enough to be a starter? Can he give you more than three or four innings? They're trying to work with him on, you don't need to throw 100. You can throw... 94 95 and hold that for a little bit longer we'll see if that takes we'll also see if maybe they decide the need is bigger in the bullpen 
Um, I like, you know, Danny Burrell as a pitching coach. They're saying all the right things about what they're doing there. I like that hire at the time. I continue to like that hire. I think the pitching talent is better now than it was when he got there. Um, but at some point, Georgia Tech's going to have to show it. And I think we're getting close to a point where they're going to have to show something better than what they've shown on the mound. I mean, to take the next step, Georgia Tech definitely has to figure that out. And I'll be intrigued whatever direction they end up going in. Um, it's uh, It's been an ongoing problem. <laughs> like, it's not something that, that's that's recent or anything there. They, they, they hit pretty well. They just got to figure out the, the pitching side of it. And um, we saw some extreme swings on that last year. And, and I, you know, we'll, we'll just have to, to wait and see on that. But I think it's a good team, kind of regardless of whether the pitching is better this year or not. If the pitching is better, they've got you know some significant upside. And I'm intrigued about Wake. Um, a really good recruiting class coming in. Obviously, it's a bit of a reset. Like we said, Chris Lanzilli transferred. Bobby Seymour is gone. Those were two very, very, very productive college baseball players that just, for whatever reason, the Deeks couldn't get over the hump with in terms of winning consistently in the ACC. Um, they've had first-round picks on the mound the last couple of years. Uh, but again, like since 2018, they just haven't been able to put everything together in terms of wins. So can this next group uh, get back to that level? That, that's that's the big question there in Winston now. Yeah, it feels like they've – I mean, you would know better than I. You follow the recruiting stuff closer than I do. Um, they've always been a program that has a pretty wide reach in terms of the players they're getting. You know, it's important to understand that it's a crowded market they're in. They are not that far. The fact that I can drive to them tells you they are not far down the road from UNC and NC State. NC State. NC <laughs> <laughs> NC State, can you tell I'm hungry? Uh, NC State and UNC and a pretty similar program in Duke. Um, and not far from Clemson or South Carolina while we're co- at it. Correct. Yes, exactly. Um, and by the way, like they don't want to always recruit these types of guys, but there are enough like decent mid-major programs here where it's not even like the, even the filler guys on your roster are harder to find because they're getting other opportunities. So um so they've always had to cast a pretty wide net when you, especially when you factor in pretty tough academics, can't get everybody in um, and high cost of attendance. Right. So there are a couple of things they have working against them, but it does kind of feel like you look at their recruiting class and it's a very good class. I mentioned Josh Hartle, but there are some position players there too, who are really exciting. And like, man, do they, that's a team when they get off the bus that looks the part. I mean, that is a roster full of guys who like physically really just, you know, look, look like they know what they're doing. You know, they love a physical hitter. I'll put it that way. And, but, you know, you look at it, it's guys from guys from Northeast, you know, it's not a ton of, I mean, there's a a decent amount of local, but it's not a fully local team. Like the way NC state builds NC state is a, is a, is a very local team. Um, Wake does it a little bit different. And I don't know if that's more so than in the past, but it, you, you do look at that roster and, and they are casting a really wide net to find guys and it's working clearly. I mean, they, they did get a really good class to campus, the arguably the best one that Tom Walters ever had at Wake. We'll have to see how it, how it plays out, of course, but um, there's just a, a lot to be excited about. And I'm, I'm kind of interested to see what comes of it because I think there's probably also a feeling in that program, like you and I talk about needing a hard reset. I think 
there's probably also a feeling in that program that while they would sure love to have some more productive players back in the lineup, that I think there was also a feeling internally this was probably something that it was it was time for. Now, Josh Hartle is relatively local. I don't know specifically where in North Carolina like he is versus Winston-Salem, but that he is a North Carolina guy. And so to get that kind of player, he was ranked about 30, 30 to 35 um, before he pulled his name out of the draft, and therefore we pulled him out of the BA 500 because we only ranked draft-eligible players. Um, so that's the kind of recruit they're getting in Josh Hartle. And to get that guy in state away from any of the uh, other schools in state is significant. And to get him, not only to get him committed uh, and to get him on campus, but to get him so committed that he's willing to say, uh, I'm just going to exit the draft process before I know, you know, even, you know, prior to the draft uh, it is, is pretty significant and, and tells you something about what they're doing uh, developing pitching there. So uh, very intriguing to see where Wake Forest heads here in the, the next few years. He's from King, North Carolina, just north of Winston-Salem. So really just down the road, like kind of between it and, and Pilot Mountain, which is a, a town a little further north there that, that puts out actually a decent number of, of baseball players. So um, local guy, but they, you know, that one, one of the guys I was trying to reach for his name that I could not come up with is Danny Corona um, from Brooklyn. You know, not not a city you see often on uh, a on the roster of a baseball program in the state of North Carolina, Brooklyn. But uh, but there he is, Brooklyn via Chattanooga. Mm. Well, there you go. Yeah, it's just it, so it's an interesting team. I, you know, I'm I'm interested to see it. Um, you know, it's uh, I think last year was a situation with them that things just really snowballed on them. You know, they they had in addition to um you know, they, they, they just took some losses early. They also had a, a poorly timed COVID pause that really like it, we did not, this was never confirmed and it was, it was never anything that was out there, but you know, they went to that into that Miami series with a really low number of players to the point where they couldn't play the, if I remember correctly, couldn't play the third game of that series. And so it was a pretty significant COVID situation they were dealing with apparently. And, and so anyway, um, things just snowballed on them last year. And so a fresh start would be, I think is, is good a number of ways. Yeah, definitely interested to, to see the next couple of years of, of Wake Forest baseball, but it's going to be a new look in uh, 2022. The, there's there's no doubt about that without some of those guys that you've been used to seeing in the heart of their lineup. Uh, all right, so while Joe was out doing that, I was, as I mentioned, down in Jupiter, Florida, um, checking out the next crop of of college players and draft prospects and the rest of it and uh i I think from a college baseball standpoint it most notably was the end of the live evaluation period for this year after the ncaa had made uh, a, a recruiting dead period basically since like march 12th of 2020 until june 1st of this year for division one uh, coaches had not been allowed out. And so they were out over the summer and then uh, back out for about a month in the fall. And this was the end of that. Um, and it, you know, there, there was a lot of talk about what would the effect of all of that be? Would there be more 
decommitments from from kids um, once they actually got to see a campus or once a coach got to see them live again, you know, would there be more decommitments or, um, you know, the, the like. And, uh, you know, we, I, we've definitely seen some of that. Um, I do think some of it has just been relatively normal. Um, nobody was happy with evaluating off of video for a year. Uh, but I, I, I do think a lot of trends that were already in place just kind of kept rolling on. Um, we'll see what some of the effects are. They're, they're going to take a little bit longer to play out, but there have been, um, you know, it, it was just interesting to, to see how this summer played out in terms of, uh, you know, coaches being able to get back out on the road and, and seeing what they saw. So uh, th- that now is, is wrapped up for, for this year with uh, the end of the live evaluation period. How nice was it? Was it, <laughs> was it nice to have, basically a ready-made like opener, like, you know, cause you go to these events and, and you're trying to, you know, you're, you're visiting with coaches who, you know, in a lot of cases, frankly, because of COVID stuff, like you may not have seen in person in a while. And so it is kind of nice to have like a little bit of an, an opening line or a little bit of an icebreaker, if you will. And it had to be nice to have that icebreaker of like, you're good to be back out, huh? You know, or good to be back here kind of thing. That's, I feel like that's, that's gotta be a nice little, uh, nice little way to start a conversation rather than something a little more contrived. You know, I probably didn't use that as much as I could have, but uh, yeah, there was a lot of that or like just, oh, I haven't seen you in like a year. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was, it was good from my perspective to be able to get out and, and uh, you know, get some FaceTime that has been lacking for, uh, for the last year. The, the other intriguing thing from, you know, in, in the recruiting world right now is that the number one player in the 2022 prep class is Tamar Johnson. He's a middle infielder from Georgia. Um, I've seen him several times over the last few years, just incredible hit tool, good athlete. Uh, I believe, you know, he's, he's, he's got an incredible track record with USA baseball and into, or into travel ball and everything. So, uh, He's been a lot of fun to watch. He's been uncommitted the whole time, though. And that's something that you don't see in college baseball anymore, that a player of his caliber and fame is uncommitted that long. It it might be one thing if he had committed somewhere and then changed his mind and decommitted or whatever. But he's been he's been uncommitted the whole time. I'm, uh, I'm working on a story kind of about that and some of the other uncommitted high profile players from the class. Uh, but basically he, he's just had a plan. Uh, he and his family came up with a plan. They, they stuck to it. And uh, with them not being able to take official visits last year, uh, that just kind of delayed the whole thing. And he's you know going to go out now that travel ball is done. Um, he's going to go out and start taking his visits and, and have a commitment relatively soon, I guess, probably before signing day, but uh, it's uh, it's been a much different process. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about early commitments and when it's too early to have high school kids committing to colleges. Uh, but he uh, he's kind of the, the dead opposite of that. And maybe some of that, you know, maybe he's been immune to some of that just because of the talent he is, which is, again, you know, he's, we have him ranked as the best player in the class. Um, you know, maybe a 
a player further down the rankings doesn't feel like he can wait around if if given offers. But uh, it, it is interesting to see somebody buck the trend uh, so at, at such a high level. It'd be interesting to know. Um, I guess I'll, I will. I won't ask you too many follow up questions, Eric, because we'll, we'll we'll save it for the story and we'll have the listeners uh, read that before we, we give them too much room. But you know, you, you do wonder how much his recruiting. I don't say his options because, like, basically he can call his shot to a certain degree. But um, in terms of who's really solidly recruiting him now, may have changed just based on how late it kind of is in the process and the fact that he's the number one player in the class. It's not really like you have you commit him now and then you have several years to build a relationship to the point where like, maybe I could talk him into coming to campus. You're just, you're left with not a whole lot of time to pull that kind of thing off for a guy who let's be honest, is probably not going to end up in college baseball anyway. Right. This is, you know, a, a very uniquely college baseball problem There, I suppose maybe some college basketball coaches are, are becoming a little more used to it. Um, you know, the, last couple i i I guess amani bates and um who's the jaron duran is that is that the other one i think it was yeah jaron duran that just committed to memphis those two guys uh committed like this summer to go to memphis this fall uh previously they were like the two best players in the 2022 class and they could have gone pro instead so there is a little bit of it at the highest level of college basketball, but it is a very college baseball thing that, oh, like, well, if you're a top 10 player in the class, I definitely want you, but like, well, also what's the chance of you, you ever playing for me, even if I do commit you, um, it, it adds a whole bunch of wrinkles to, to this, but I would say that, um, you know, there's still value in, in having the number one player in the class, even if it's just as a, you know, marketing tool, ultimately, um, you can, uh, you do get to say normally for more than a year that like the number one player in the country is committed to our school. And so that's like, look, that's, that's that guy saying that this is where he wants to go to college. Like you should also come here, um, or ask him about it. And then you get, uh, you know, you know, the endorsement of, of, uh, or the, the, you can talk to a player your own age about why you should come to that school um, or, or at least just see that, well, if he thinks that this is a good place to develop, like why, why do I disagree with that? You're not going to get that advantage for very long with Tamar, but I, I do think it would, it would definitely be, be worth something. And of course, you know, you never know how the draft plays out uh, beyond that. And um, it, you could get really lucky. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people thought Kamar Rocker and Jack Leiter uh, were not going to go to college, and ultimately they did, and to the great benefit of Vanderbilt, obviously. Yeah, I think I, I saw a tweet one time during the CWS, you know, Texas got Tanner Witt to campus, and Dustin McComas, who has recently left covering the, the Longhorns, but covered them really, baseball program really well for a long time, and, you know, he made a point on Twitter that you know, coaches get criticized at these major programs sometimes for quote unquote, wasting resources, committing guys who are never going to make it to campus. And, you know, you recruit that level of player, you know, what, nine times out of 10, 95 times out of a hundred, you're not going to get that player to campus, but one time you do, and it's better that you gave it a shot than you didn't, you know? Um, so 
there, there is something to be said for staying in that game. Because I think the minute, the other thing is the minute you start to try to parse, like, is this guy actually, you know, is, is he too good? Is he, you know, is, is he good enough? He's going to leave like maybe. So what's the minute you start doing that too, I think coaches would tell you it's also a little bit of a slippery slope when, when really you should probably just recruit the players you want to recruit and, and leave it at that and worry about the rest of it down the road. Yeah. And, you know, everyone has their own philosophy about it. You know, there's some guys that are really out there trying to figure out like how much do they value a college degree versus not. And well, if they're local, I'll spend more time on it than if they're not, you know, and, and, and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, you, if a player that is a first round talent wants to commit to your program, uh, most of the time you kind of just have to go along with it and, and hope it works out because sometimes it will, sometimes it won't, but the times, the times that it does, it, it's going to be pretty significant uh, that, that you would get it. And if you're trying to compete at the top of the sport, um, you, you need, you need the talent that, that those guys represent. One other question I have for you, just general kind of general recruiting, not specific to, to, to Jupiter, but maybe it, maybe it came up in conversations you had is, you know, it's just been a long time since coaches have been able to lay actual eyes on on players. And I talked to a coach at the very beginning of the recruiting period, re- recruiting reopening in the summer that said, you know, it feels like we've been online dating, you know, for, for a while now. And now it's time to actually start going on dates with these people. And like, you're going to start to figure out like which ones, you know, the way he put it, you're, you're going to find out which ones actually look like their picture and which ones don't, which actually, I, I guess, could also be in a literal sense with, with baseball players. You know, this player is supposedly 6'3", and he's actually closer to six feet tall, you know, that kind yeah, of no, thing. There's a very literal sense to that, yes. Yes. So, like, <laughs> do you get a sense for if, if we end up seeing more of players reevaluating their choices a little bit now that maybe they can have contact with real people in person or the other way around where options open up, I guess, more for, for better or worse for the program when they start to look at some of these guys and, and maybe start to correct some of what they ended up, what some of what they had to do whenever recruit, live recruiting was shut down. I, I think it's both. And, you know, certainly some of it is kind of the negative side of this where now being able to see a player in person for the first time, you realize that what you saw in video doesn't quite match or just the normal thing that they aren't developing the way you thought they would. And then, you know, coaches have difficult conversations to have and we could talk about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for college baseball and all the rest of it. But, you know, now is not the time, but like some of that's definitely going to happen. And some of it's going to happen on the other way on on the player's side where either they're going to realize like, oh, well, now that I'm actually, you know, able to be in the building or, you know, have more extended conversations with the coaches, um, maybe this fit isn't right for me. Or I've gotten a lot better than anybody realized I would. And so now I can go and, you know, reopen my commitment and, and see how things go this time. And, um you know, again, this is just the reality uh, that I, I think a lot of people are probably not thrilled about right now. But with uh, with recruiting having gone online only for a year, and with players committing earlier, 
um, you know, that, that opens the door for, for this kind of thing. And so I do think there's been a little bit more of that than usual, but I also don't think like if you go, if you, if you take the clock back to like June of 2020, uh, when it became clear that there was going to be no summer evaluation last year, they, uh, th- there was a lot of ap- apocalyptic talk about like, well, this is going to set the classes all back and guys are going to get squeezed here. And you're just going to see a ton of decommitments because players and coaches aren't going to know what they're doing. Like there's definitely more than, than usual, but I don't think it's been quite as bad as, as what people feared it might be. Yeah. And I guess as much as anything else, you know, for, for someone like me, it's just, it's nice to have that recruiting aspect back. Cause there were, the reality was, the last couple of years, there probably has been a, a, a subset of player who just ended up kind of getting passed over in the recruiting process. And maybe that meant opportunities for some other subset of players. Somebody in the recruiting process is always going to have to lose. You know, there's only so many spots. However, they were probably a subset of players that deserved opportunities that didn't get them because they didn't get a chance to, to play in some of these events and, and so on and so forth. So it is nice to, to have that back because it, I think that's, you know, uh, that, that was one of the things I think everyone could agree on and lament about the pandemic is, is there were some players who were, who were getting squeezed that otherwise would not have. Yes, that that's absolutely the case. And to, to just have the live period back and all the events back is, uh, is good for the players. It's good for the coaches and it, it, it's generally just a, a good thing all the way around. All right, so that's going to do it for us today on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, Remember to subscribe to the podcast on all of your favorite podcasting apps, be that Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us and rate and review. If uh, if you can do that as well, that always uh, helps, helps us out, helps other people to find the podcast as well. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And you can find all of the content over at baseballamerica.com. We're still rolling out. I, I still have a couple more conferences to, to get to in the conference by conference recruiting breakdowns. And we've got uh, you know all those five question series from Joe uh, that we mentioned, all of those available and continuing on uh, over at baseballamerica.com. We will be back here next week, earlier in the week, with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, So look for that in your podcast feed uh, sometime early next week as we continue to go weekly uh, throughout the offseason here on the the Baseball America College podcast. Thank you to Rapsodo for presenting this and every edition of the Baseball America College podcast. Thank you to UC Irvine coach Ben Orloff for joining us today. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. 
Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.